You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, everybody, if I could just simply welcome you all to the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute for the arts and humanities. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I am the uh, director of the hub, very privileged to be the director of the hub. And in here we do three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. We uh, promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And the third thing we do is we have a very dynamic public humanities programme and we really work hard if you want to bring the insights from the arts and humanities uh, to a wider community. And uh, uh, obviously this evening is part of our public humanities uh, programme and it forms part of a wider lecture series. I don't know if people have seen this little flyer, um, uh, uh, The Russian Revolution, Utopia, Dystopia. Um, we've got a whole series uh, of events throughout the course of the year to uh, commemorate one of the most significant revolutions uh, in world history, the Russian Revolution, uh, and tonight is the kickoff of that. Uh, then we've got lectures, uh, uh, as I say, throughout the year, basically every month. Um, we've got James Ryan from Cardiff on the 2nd of November, Stephen Smith from Oxford on the 6th of December, uh, Emma O'Connor on uh, the 22nd of January and then 14th of February, nice way to celebrate Valentine's, uh, Justin Doherty uh, of, uh, as I say, probably well known to you all of this parish. And then the final event will be in March uh, with Arisia uh, uh, Kulik and Molly Pucci again of Trinity. So we hope that you'll come to all of these events. Um, I know Sarah's trying to get everybody a programme. I think we could probably get some more printed because it really is lovely to see so many people here. So apart from that, welcome. There's a hand at the back. Does that mean you're looking for a programme? Yes, we'll probably we'll get more printed. So don't worry. That they're, uh, is, is, is somebody doing that or are you just trying to share them? No, we're sharing them at the moment. Oh, we're sharing them at the moment. But we can get more printed if, if you want that, Sarah, um, Sarah. Well, if they're going to join in the singing, we're going to need, we're going to need a few more to be printed. And there's more people coming in. So why don't we get... A few more printed, and that way everybody has access to one. That's great. It's fabulous. It's great there's so many people here. So while everybody else is getting settled, I'm just going to simply hand over to Sarah, who is running this evening's event. Uh, um,
please do join in. You'll probably recognise the songs. You may not recognise the language that they're in. Uh, so if you can't sing along in Russian, just hum along. <laughs> increase the volume, particularly with the last, uh, the international, which is what we're going to end with, which I'm sure you all know, and we'll try and get the volume up uh, to an impressive level uh, of death dance. So we've selected prose and verse readings. Um, for the main part, uh, we're not going to introduce them. The reader will just stand up. The readers are interspersed amongst the audience to try and create a sense of their voices coming out of the crowd. Um, and I will try and make sure that they all have mics uh, when they're reading, once the mic situation has been <coughs> resolved. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with a song. J during the revolution, the revolution we sang two songs. They sang uh, the Russian version of a Polish <coughs> socialist revolutionary song called Varsavianka, uh, and they sang the French national anthem, the Marseillaise. Uh, well, we're going to go with Varsavianka, and a colleague from the Department of Russian and Slavonic Studies is going to lead us uh, in, in song, and we're going to be accompanied by a YouTube. Uh, during the readings, then, there will also be... Oh, sorry, my, my reading. My reading has gone around. During the readings, um, there will be a slideshow, um, which, which um, was enormously fun putting together. I decided that I'd try and find as many paintings as I could that were painted in 1917. And as I did this exercise, I was intrigued at the kind of range of styles and the range of themes uh, that people uh, were being exercised by uh, in this year of, of revolutions. So the slideshow will just continue on the loop, and you can kind of concentrate when you want to concentrate, and then click out when you don't want to. So I'm going to hand over now to uh, Dimitar, who's going to lead us in singing Varshavyanka. Do you want us to sing as well? Yes, I do. Anyone can <laughs> sing, please sing. <coughs>
Uh, we're going to move on now to a reading of a letter by Katerina Dreshkovskaya, who's uh, referred to as the grandmother of the revolution. The last letter, June 10th, 23rd, 1917, the Crimea. My ever dear and beloved friends, Alex S. Blackwell, Helena Dudley, Jane Adams, Ellen Starr, Arthur Bullard, Friend Poole, and so many others, faithful and brave. A new history of the world is beginning, and here we are at the first steps of a march always difficult, but promising the most desirable results. We are directing our steps towards socialism, <coughs> and here we are at the first steps of a march always up. up. We are directing our steps towards socialism, and the task is to make them secure, firm, and real. We socialists are working energetically for this, and the sympathy that we meet from, people, uh, from the people gives us courage and assurance. Certain disorders and some partial revolts, of which the newspapers speak, have taken place here and there, it is true. We are doing our utmost to combat the false ideas spread by stupid or malevolent persons, scoundrels who have nothing to lose, without conscience or honour, who have come from every part of the world. But the truth is that their propaganda affects only the young, weak and ignorant minds. And as our army is made up mostly of such elements, it is the army that is the breathing place of all the disturbances which we have to overcome. As for the rest of the population, the men and women of the villages and the faubourgs, they constitute a peaceful and patriotic element, desirous to see the war brought to an end advantageous to Russia, without humiliations and without losses. But you can well conceive, my friends, that most of the people, whom the women included, do not know how to read or write, cannot offer a foundation firm and durable enough, an intelligent audience, uh, an audience intelligent enough to understand and remember everything that they hear from time to time from their socialist friends, who, with all their efforts, cannot suffice to be everywhere and as often as would be needful. Vast distances, provinces situated at the farthest limits of this immense country, always remain plunged in darkness and cannot take in, cannot form a correct idea of what is going on in the world. It is necessary to illuminate to enlighten the minds of a nation that is ready to grasp knowledge, a nation that has been forcibly deprived of all teaching. For there are only a few thousand fortunate persons who were able to get an education in, this in the small number of schools that did not in any way meet the needs of a population of 170 million people. Yes, our past history has been a fatal one for Russia in every respect. The finances utterly ruined, all the country's present wealth and resources devastated, the war, which is absorbing the rest, increasing our debts at a rate of 40 million rubles a day. Moreover, at present we lack everything necessary, such as machi machines, tools and paper. We have everything to repair, not only to meet the present situation, but with a view to the future of our nation, which is capable of taking an active part in the upbuilding of the civilization of the world. 
the new history must make all the nations members of one family. The better these members are prepared for a reasonable and brotherly life, the better they understand the reciprocity of their mutual interests, the better they know each other's customs, history, and civilizations, the surer and deeper will be their friendship, the stronger will be the ties that unite them. The international interdependence of reciprocal interests, present and future, is a subject that must be thoroughly gone into in all its complexity. But an ignorant nation will have difficulty in understanding it unless it is introduced by some preliminary explanations and has some concrete ideas about it. We must teach them the causes of this present war and set before them the consequences that may follow if the Russians do not behave properly towards their allies. My friends and I are doing our utmost to furnish the country with the, necessa the necessary literature to organize groups of intelligent women and men um, ready to go among the masses, to enlighten them and to instruct them. <coughs> women, men, youths, even old people. In the hospitals, in the barracks, wherever there is anybody to talk to, they are explaining, giving lessons, reading. Um, but we are too few to meet this vast need for instruction. <coughs> they snatch our pamphlets from us. They ask for more and more still of them. From every corner, near and far, they are begging for us to send them teachers and leaders. But we cannot respond to more than a tenth part of these demands. <coughs> Time presses, questions are piling up. The war is ruining the whole world. We are nearer the brink of ruin than the rest. The bourgeoisie think only of themselves. They are not helping us. We need many good newspapers capable of reaching the intelligence of our ignorant people and showing them the truth about the present situation, the misfortune that awaits us if we lose the esteem and the confidence of our friends, the Allies. For this, we must have millions of copies of newspapers, uh, not the mere thousands. And in order to get them, we need printing office with rotary presses, capable of running off a considerable number of copies every day. We have none such in Russia, except those that are in the hands of the capitalists, who will not part with them. We are receiving no more since the breaking out of war, <coughs> since it has become impractical to import things. In our country, rotary presses are not manufactured, so we poor socialists remain with empty hands, limited to working with small machines, which gives us miserable thousands of copies, instead of the millions that are indispensable. That is why I address myself to you, my friends. Get up a subscription to raise a sum of money which will first serve to buy a rotary printing press and paper enough to furnish reading matter for several months until the meeting of the General Assembly. The second part of the money as the capital necessary to begin the great affair of publishing the paper. Make the American public understand that it is not only a question of the salvation of the Russian people, but a question which concerns international relations and interests. The whole world will be a gainer by having as a member a country with ideas nobly and wisely directed towards the common good. This is in no sense a utopia. As for, as I have told you all along in our correspondence, the Russians are a capable people and of a good disposition. 
All they need is civilization and education. To be sure, after some years and by great efforts, we should be able to accomplish it by our own strength. But for, for in spite of the troubles and disorders that are manifesting themselves at present, common sense and good faith will get the upper hand. But it would be a great pity not to do the utmost possible to hasten the glad time of an order which would permit working with full power and speedy success, instead of letting the time drag along at the risk of delaying the general well-being. Think of it, friends, and let me know your decision as soon as it is reached whether it be favourable or unfavourable. I very much wish that it be favourable. I urge you to decide as soon as possible, too, because my health is not as strong as it used to be. I should like much to see with my own eyes the installation of the whole affair. My experience has been great, and I have never had at my side persons unworthy of confidence. Now that all activities are carried on openly, I have every opportunity to make a good choice while I am alive to do it. So, in case you consent, I beg you to address the things, the machine, its equipment, and the paper, as well as the money, to the address, Russia, Moscow, Kuznetsky Most, 16, for Catherine Bershkovsky. Anna Akhmatova, 1917. Когда в тоске самоубийство Народ костей немецких ждал И дух суровой византийства От русской церкви отлетал Когда Приневская столица Забыв величие свое Как опоневшая блудница Не знала, кто берет ее. Мне голос был. Он звал утешно. Он говорил, иди сюда. Оставь свой край глухой и грешный. Оставь Россию навсегда. Я кровь от рук, от рук твоих отмою. Из сердца вынул черный стыд. Я новым именем покрою боли поражений и обид. Но равнодушно и спокойно руками я замкнула слух, чтобы этой речью недостойной не осквернился скорбный дух. When, in suicidal anguish, the nation waited its German guests, and the stern spirit of Byzantium had fled from the Russian church. When the capital, by the Neva, forgetting her greatness, like a drunken prostitute, did not know who would take her next, a voice came to me. It told, comforting me. It said, come here. Leave your deaf and sinful land. Leave Russia forever. I will wash the blood from your hands, roar out the black shame from your heart. 
With a new name, I will conceal the pains of defeats and injuries. <clears throat> but calmly and indifferently, I covered my ears with my hands, so that my sorrowing spirit would not be stained by those shameful words. Marian Sitaeva, uh, 25 years old, she spent uh, the entire year of 1917 pregnant and nursing her newborn baby. Um, the, her second daughter, who died at the age of three uh, uh, during the Civil War. But back in 1917, uh, on the New Year's Eve, uh, Sitaeva wrote this very short poem uh, about being trapped and uh, wanting to be somewhere else. Новый год я встретила одна. Я богатая была бедна. Я крылатая была проклятой. Где-то было много-много сжатых рук и много старого вина. А крылатая была проклятой, а единая была одна. Как луна одна к глазу окна. Вся власть 
учредительному собранию. Старушка убивается, плачет, ни так никак не поймет, что значит, за, за что такой плакат, такой огромный лоскут, сколько, сколько бы вышло портянок для ребят, и вся о всякий раздет, разут. Старушка, как курица, кое-как переметнулась через сугроб. Ой, матушка заступница! Ой, большевики загонят в гроб. One cannot hear the city's din. Silence reigns over Nevsky's tower. There are no more policemen now, so frolic, friends, though there's no wine. The bourgeois stands here at the crossroads, with nose tucked into his coat collar. A coarse-haired, mangy dog beside him cringes its tail between its legs. The bourgeois stands like a hungry dog, wordless he stands like a question mark. And the old world stands like a mongrel dog, right behind him, its tail between its legs. Не слышно шуму городского над Невской башней тишина. И больше нет городового. Гуляют ребята без вина. Стоит буржуй на перекрестке, и воротник упрятал нос. А рядом жмется шерстью жесткой поджавший хвост паршивый. Стоит буржуй, как пес голодный, Стоит безмолвный, как вопрос, И старый мир, как пес безродный, Стоит за ним поджавший хвост. Without the holy name's protection, the twelve go marching on, ready for anything, regretting nothing. Their steel rifles now are aimed at the foe invisible in the dead-end alleys where only the snowstorm swirls its dust and the feather-soft snowbanks grab your boot and won't let go. Their red flag strikes the watchful eye. One can hear their measured pace. Soon will wake the mortal foe. And the blizzard dusts their eyes, days and nights, without reprieve. Forward, forward, working people. И идут без имени святого все двенадцать вдаль. Ко всему готовы, ничего не жаль. Их винтовочки стальные на незримого врага. Переулочки глухие, где одна пылит бурга, да в сугробы пуховые не утонешь сапога, сапога, не утянешь сапога. В очи бьется красный флаг, раздается нервный шаг. Вот проснется лютый враг, и в юга пылит в. Им бочи, 
дни и ночи напролет. Вперед, вперед, рабочий народ. So they march with sovereign tread. Behind them limps the hungry dog, and wrapped in wild snow at their head, carrying a blood-red flag. Soft-footed where the blizzard swirls, invulnerable where bullets crossed, crowned with a crown of snowflake pearls, a flowery diadem of frost. Ahead of them goes Jesus Christ. Так идут державным шагом. Позади голодный пес, впереди с кровавым флагом э, и над изобьюгой невидим, и от, и от пули невредим, нежной поступью над южной, снежной россыпью жемчужной в белом венчике изрос, впереди Иисус Христос. socialist who wrote one of the earliest first-hand accounts of the October Revolution and suffered greatly in getting his materials out of Russia and uh, uh, rushed to print. I can't help feeling that part of that was that he wanted to pit his wife to the post. Uh, she produced her own uh, publications and then later this is from <coughs> 10 days that took her off. September and October are the worst months of the Russian year especially the Petrograd here, under dull grey skies in the shortening days, the rain fell drenching, incessant. The mud underfoot was deep, slippery and clinging, tracked everywhere by heavy boots and worse than usual because of the complete breakdown of the municipal administration. Bitter, damp winds rushed in from the Gulf of Finland and the chill fog rolled through the streets. At night, for motives of economy as well as fear of zeppelins, the street lights were few and far between. In private dwellings and apartment houses, the electricity was turned on from six o'clock until midnight, with candles 40 cents apiece and little kerosene to be had. It was dark from three in the afternoon to 10 in the morning. Robberies and housebreakings increased. In apartment houses, the men took turns at all night guard duty, armed with loaded rifles. This was under the provisional government. Week by week, food became scarcer. The daily allowance of bread fell from a pound and a half to a pound, then three quarters, half and a quarter pound. Towards the end, there was a week without any bread at all. Sugar, one was entitled to at the rate of two pounds a month, if one could get it at all, which was seldom. A bar of chocolate or a pound of tasteless candy cost anywhere from seven to ten rubles, at least a dollar. There was milk for about half the babies in the city. Most hotels and private houses never saw it for months. In the fruit season, apples and pears sold for a little less than a ruble apiece on the street corner. For milk and bread and sugar and tobacco, one had to stand in queue, long hours in the chill rain. Coming home from an all-night night meeting, I have seen the chuost beginning to form before dawn, mostly women, some with babies in their arms. Carlyle, in his French Revolution, has described the French people as distinguished 
above all others by their faculty of standing in queue. Russia had accustomed herself to this practice, begun in the reign of Nicholas the Blessed as long ago as 1915, and from then continued intermittently until the summer of 1917, when it settled down as the regular order of things. Think of the poorly clad people standing on the iron-white streets of Petrograd whole days in the Russian winter. I have listened in the bread lines, hearing the bitter, acrid note of discontent, which from time to time burst up through the miraculous good nature of the Russian crowd. Of course, all the theatres were going every night, including Sundays. Karsavina appeared in a new ballet at the Marinsky. Old, dance-loving Russia came to see her. Chaliapin was singing at the Alexandrinsky. They were reviving Meyerhold's production of Tolstoy's Death of Ivan the Terrible. And at that performance, I remember noticing a student of the Imperial School of Pages in his dress uniform, who stood up correctly between the acts and faced the, em the empty Imperial box with its eagles all erased. The Krivaya Zerkala staged a sumptuous version of Schnitzer's writing. Although the Hermitage and other picture galleries had been evacuated to Moscow, there were weekly exhibitions of paintings. Hordes of the female intelligentsia went to hear lectures on art, literature, and the easy philosophies. It was a particularly active season for the Theosophists. And the Salvation Army, admitted to Russia for the first time in history, plastered the walls with announcements of gospel meetings which amused and astounded Russian audiences. As in all such times, the petty conventional life of the city went on, ignoring the revolution as much as possible. The poets made verses, but not about the revolution. The realistic painters painted scenes from medieval history, anything but the revolution. Young ladies from the provinces came up to the capital to learn French and cultivate their voices. And the gay young beautiful officers wore their gold-trimmed crimson bashoki and their elaborate Caucasian swords around the hotel lobbies. The ladies of the minor bureaucratic set took tea with one another in the afternoon, carrying each her little gold or silver or jeweled sugar box and half a loaf of bread in her muff and wished the Tsar were back or that the Germans would come or anything that would solve the servant problem. The daughter of a friend of mine came home one afternoon in hysterics because the woman streetcar conductor had called her comrade. <laughs> All around them, Great Russia was in travail, bearing a new world. The servants one used to treat like animals and pay next to nothing were getting independent. A pair of shoes cost more than 100 rubles. And as wages averaged about 35 rubles a month, the servants refused to stand in queue and wear out their shoes. But more than that, in the new Russia, every man and woman could vote there were working-class newspapers saying new and startling things. There were the Soviets and there were the unions. The Izvorshiki cab drivers had a union. They were also represented in the Petrograd Soviet. The waiters and hotel servants were organized and refused tips. On the walls of restaurants, they put up signs which read, no tips taken here, <laughs> or... Just because a man has to make his living waiting on table is no reason to insult him by offering him a tip. At the front, the soldiers fought out their right with fight with the officers and learned self-government through their committees. 
in the factories, those unique Russian organizations, the factory shop committees, gained experience and strength and a realization of their historical mission by combat with the old order. All Russia was learning to read and reading, politics, economics, history, because the people wanted to know. In every city, in those towns along the front, each political faction had its newspaper, sometimes several. Hundreds of thousands of pamphlets were distributed by thousands of organizations and poured into the armies, the villages, the factories, the streets. The thirst for education, so long thwarted, burst with the revolution into a frenzy of expression. From Smolny Institute alone, the first six months went out every day, tons, carloads, trainloads of literature, saturating the land. Russia absorbed reading matter like hot sand drinks water, insatiable. And it was not fables. Falsified history, diluted religion, and the cheap fiction that corrupts but social and economic theories, philosophy, the works of Tolstoy, Gogol, and Gorky. Then the talk, besides which Carlyle's flood of French, flood of French speech was a mere trickle. Lectures, debates, speeches in theatres, circuses, schoolhouses, clubs, Soviet meeting rooms, union headquarters, barracks, meetings in the trenches at the front, in village squares, in factories, but a marvellous sight to see Putilovsky Zavod, the Putilov factory, pour out its 40,000 to listen to social democrats, socialist revolutionaries, anarchists, anybody, whatever they have to say, as long as they could talk. For months in Petrograd and all over Russia, every street corner was a public tribune. In railway trains, streetcars, always the spurting of an impromptu debate everywhere. And the all-Russian conferences and congresses, drawing together the men of two continents, conventions of Soviets, of cooperatives, Zemskis, nationalities, priests, peasants, political parties, <coughs> the Democratic Conference, the Moscow Conference, the Council of the Russian Republic, there were always three or four conventions going on in Petrograd. At every meeting, attempts to limit the time of speakers voted down, and every man free to express the thought that was in him. We came down to the front of the 12th Army, back of Riga, where gaunt and bootless men sickened in the mud of desperate trenches. And when they saw us, they started up with their pinched faces and the flesh showing glued through their torn clothing, demanding eagerly, did you bring anything to read? What though the outward and visible signs of change were many, what though the statue of Catherine the Great before the Alexandrovsky Theatre bore a little red flag in its hand, and others somewhat faded, floated from all public buildings, and the imperial monograms and eagles were either torn down or covered up, and in place of the fierce Galadovaya city police, a mild-mannered and unarmed citizen militia patrolled the streets. Still, there were many quaint anachronisms. For example, Peter the Great's Tabula Rangov, Table of Ranks, which he riveted upon Russia with an iron hand, still held sway. Almost everybody from the school by up wore his prescribed uniform with the insignia of the emperor on button and shoulder strap. Along about five o'clock in the afternoon, the streets were full of subdued old gentlemen in uniform with portfolios going home from work in the huge barrack-like ministries or government institutions, 
calculating perhaps how great a mortality among their superiors would advance them to the coveted chin or rank of collegiate assessor or privy councillor, with the prospect of retirement on a comfortable pension and possibly the cross at St. Anne. There is the story of Senator Sokolov, who, in full tide of revolution, came to a meeting of the Senate one day in civilian clothes and was not admitted because he did not wear the prescribed livery of the Tsar's service. It was against this background of a whole nation in ferment and disintegration that the pageant of the rising of the Russian masses unrolled. We're going to jump one year back to hear Sergei Yesenin and the heavenly drummer in Russian. There's going to be no translation. Givy, rabi, rabi, priukam zemlie priplivy, nincho vnu svady, lošedi vypili, listimi zvezdy lyutsa v rikach na našich polach. Da zdravstvuje revolucija na zemlie i na nebesah. Duši brasajem bombami. Сеем пурговый свист, что нам слюна, иконная, в наши ворота ввысь. Нам ли страшны полководцы, белого стада горил, взвихренной конницей рвется к новому берегу мир. Если это солнце, заговори с ними, мы его сиратью на штыках подымем. Если это месяц, друг их черной силы, мы его с лазури Камнями в затылок. Разметем все тучи, Все дороги взмесим. Бубенцом мы землю К радуге привесим. Ты звени, звени нам, Мать земля сырая, О полях и рощах Голубого края. Солдаты, 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 Сверкающий бич на смерчом. Кто хочет свободы и братства, Тому умирать нипочем. Смыкайте же тесной стеною, кому ненавистен туман, тот солнце корявой рукою сорвет на золотой барабан, сорвет и пойдет по дорогам лицов над озерами сил, на тени церквей и острогов на белое стадо горил. В том зове калмык и татарин почувствует свой чаянный град, и черное небо хвостами, хвостами коров вспоминят. Верьте, победа за нами, новый берег недалек, волны белыми когтями золотой скребут песок. Скоро, скоро вал последний миллионам брызнет лун. Сердце, свечка за обедней, пасхи массы и коммун. Ратью смуглой, ратью дружной мы идем сплотить весь мир. Мы идем и пылью в южной тает облако горил. Мы идем, а там за чащей, сквозь белесость и туман, наш небесный барабанщик лупит солнце барабан. I, Bertrand Russell, entered Soviet Russia on May 11th and recrossed the frontier on June 16th of 1920. I travelled with the British Labour delegation. We were conveyed from the frontier to Petrograd, as well as on subsequent journeys, in a special Trandalux, covered with mottos about the Soviet social revolution and the proletariat of all countries. 
We were received everywhere by regiments of soldiers, with the Antoine Nacional being played on the regimental band, while civilians stood bareheaded and soldiers at the salute. The first five days we spent in Petrograd, the next eleven in Moscow. Soon after my arrival in Moscow, I had an hour's conversation with Lenin in English, which he speaks very well. An interpreter was present, but his services were scarcely required. Lenin's room is very bare. It contains a big desk, some maps on the wall, two bookcases, and one comfortable chair for visitors in addition to two or three hard chairs. It is obvious that he has no love of luxury or even comfort. He is very friendly and apparently simple, entirely without a trace of hauteur. If one met him without knowing who he was, one would not guess that he is possessed of great power, or even that he is in any way eminent. I have never met a person so destitute of self-importance. He looks at his visitors very closely and screws up one eye, which seems to increase alarmingly the penetrating power of the other. He laughs a great deal. At first his laugh seems merely friendly and jolly, but gradually I came to feel it rather grim. He is dictatorial, calm, incapable of fear, extraordinarily devoid of self-seeking, an embodied theory. The materialist conception of history, one feels, is his lifeblood. He resembles a professor in his desire to have the theory understood and in his fury with those who misunderstand or disagree, as also in his love of expanding. I got the impression that he despises a great many people and is an intellectual aristocrat. I think if I had met him without knowing who he was, I should not have guessed that he was a great man. He struck me as too opinionated and narrowly orthodox. His strength comes, I imagine, from his honesty, courage and unwavering faith, religious faith in the Marxian gospel, which takes the place of the Christian martyr's hope of paradise, except that it is less egotistical. He has as little love of liberty as the Christians who suffered under Diocletian and retaliated when they acquired power. Perhaps love of liberty is incompatible with wholehearted belief in a panacea for all human ills. If so, I cannot but rejoice in the sceptical temper of the Western world. I went to Russia a socialist, but contact with those who have no doubts has intensified a thousandfold my own doubts, not as to socialism in itself, but as to the wisdom of holding a creed so firmly that for its sake men are willing to inflict widespread misery. Trotsky, whom the communists do not by any means regard as Lenin's equal, made more impression upon me from the point of view of intelligence and personality, though not of character. I saw too little of him, however, to have more than a very superficial impression. He has bright eyes, military bearing, lightning intelligence and magnetic personality. He is very good looking, with admirable wavy hair. One feels he would be irresistible to women. <laughs> I felt in him a vein of gay good humour, so long as he was not crossed in any way. I thought, perhaps wrongly, that his vanity was even greater than his love of power, the sort of vanity that one associates with an artist or actor. The comparison with Napoleon was forced upon one. But I had no means of estimating the strength of his communist conviction, which may be very sincere and profound. An extraordinary contrast to both these men was Gorky, with whom I had a brief interview in Petrograd. He was in bed, very ill and obviously heartbroken. He begged me in everything or anything I might say about Russia always to emphasize what Russia has suffered. He supports the government, as I should do if I were a Russian, not because he thinks it is faultless, but because the possible alternatives are worse. One felt in him a love, a love of the Russian people which makes their present martyrdom also almost unbearable. And, pre prevented, and prevents the fanatical faith by which the pure Marxians are upheld. I felt him the most lovable and to me the most sympathetic of all the Russians I saw. I wished for more knowledge of his outlook, but he spoke with great difficulty and was constantly interrupted by terrible fits of coughing, so that I could not stay. 
All the intellectuals whom I met, a class who have suffered terribly, expressed their gratitude to him for what he has done on their behalf. Gorky has done all that one man could to preserve the intellectual and artistic life of Russia. I feared that he was dying, and that perhaps it was too. I hope I was mistaken in both respects. Extraordinary Committee of Secret Police, in other words. Uh, the Cheka in Kharkov at that time was headed up by a man called Sayanka, who had a terrible reputation for, for, for being sadistic and, and bloodthirsty. And there's a reference at the very end of this uh, shortish poem by Kievnikov to eyeballs in Russian, Yablokoglaznoya, <coughs> is literally the eye apple. So Klebnikov is quoting this, uh, a, a, a phrase attributed to this guy, Sayanka, who, who developed a taste for uh, uh, these new type of apples, um, or eyeballs, uh, in, a, in a flippant off-the-cuff remark he's supposed to have made. So um, Klebnikov was an enthusiastic supporter of the revolution um, when, it, when it arrived in in, well, 1st February and then October uh, 1917, but uh, like many Russians, he, he, were, he was sickened at the, the bloodshed during, during the Civil War years. And uh, this, this poem is one of a cycle of things that he wrote in 1920-21, uh, protesting at the violence that, that was going on. He was, he was a pacifist, amongst, amongst other things. But the poem itself, I've, uh, I'm just going to read in Russian, but I'll, I'll just explain a couple of features very briefly. Lyubnikov is very known for his play with language, his experiments with language and word play. And uh, part of the, the, the sense of the poem comes from the way he plays with language. Uh, the poem begins with the, the line of Moria Mora. Mor is an archaic Russian word for play. Moria is the sea. They sound very similar. So he connects these words together. Uh, he also plays on the colloquial term for the Chekach, Rizvichaika, uh, that was current at the time, and he rhymes that with the Russian noun Chaika, which is a seagull title of Chekhov's famous play, uh, amongst other things. So uh, it's kind of untranslatable, but uh, I'll give you, give you a, a rendition in Russian. So he starts off uh, evoking the, the suffering of people uh, persecuted by the Cheka in, in quite graphic ways. He then uh, asserts that this is unworthy of the victor. So it's not that he's <coughs> refusing to support the Bolsheviks, but he's not happy with the way in which the civil war has gone, the Cheka are behaving. Um, and then he finishes with this uh, rather hideous reference to the 
В море мора, в море мора, точно чайка, чрезвычайка. То в подвале, в чердаке, то в гостиной, то в халупе. Заковала, заковала большевистских горы трупов. Точно чайка, чрезвычайка, то Опустит лапы алые, в море смерти окунется, стонно в смерти зачерпнет, то в простыни земляные обовьет тела усталые, трупы мертвых завернет, и подушкой черной глины успокоит мертвецов, и под ногти бледно-синие гвозди длинные вобьет. Море плачет, море воет. Мы прошли моря и степи. Годы, годы мы мечтали о свободе. И свидетель наши дети. Разве эти смерть и цепи победителя в венок? Кто расскажет, кто поверит в горы трупов по утрам? Где следы от мертвых ног На клабишах, где гроба Роет белая судьба. Кто узнает, кто поверит В новый овощ, новый плод Яблоко глазное? Central kitchens, central laundries, 
institutions which leave the working woman free to devote her evenings to instructive reading or recreation. Only by breaking the domestic yoke will we be given, give women a chance to live a richer, happier and more complete life. The material which Kolontai is so partially attempting to mould is the peasant mind. It seems to me that the peasant women are naturally slow-moving and stolidly honest and will accept only as much of Kolontai's philosophy as they find compatible with or necessary to the immediate situation, not because they are lacking in spirituality or they are capable of deep religious fervour, but simply because much of it would be inharmonious and artificial to their normal development. At present, her mission is to awaken them so that they build a truth of their own, which by, need by no means be a lesser truth than Kolontai's. If she attempts to make them swallow her formula intact, she will certainly fail. If she compromises, as Lenin compromises, and as Kalinin does, she will perform for Russia a never-to-be-forgotten task. Today, everything has been melted down in the crucible of the revolution. The only banner-bearer who counts is the one who will give to the great mass of those emerging into the new day the broad, fundamental things of life. Soviet poets, and good is his epic poem of October. I will be reading uh, the 14th verse, which has a good English translation, and then Natasha will be reading her favourite parts, and hopefully you will get a feeling of the poem from both. Good. Over those whom sleep eternal claimed that lean, harsh winter spread a pall. What are words where the lame on the vulgar sores I refuse to dwell of a string of days I choose to speak, akin to a thousand others bleak, pushed on by the years. Oarsmen eager, not over fat nor over meagre. If ever something of worth I wrote, it was all the fault of a pair of eyes. Bottomless skies, my beloved's eyes, huge they are, round, dark brown, with a speck of hazel, coal, hot, blazing. The phone's gone stark raving mad, and axe's blunt edge striking the ear, wham! Round the huge brown eyes, pads, hunger's to blame. Doctor's orders for the eyes to be able to eye the world. Heat the place, put greens on the table by their curly green tails. Behold, I'm holding two carrots, crunchy. They're not for my stew, I'm taking them for my sweetheart, for her to munch. Boxes of sweets and flowers freely I handed out, but I recall that those carrots, plus firewood, half a billet, were the most precious gift of all, thrust under my arm, are damp pieces of wood, knobby sticks, eyebrow thick, face puffy, eyes splits, it's malnutrition, greens and care, eyes clear, bigger than saucers, they eye the revolution. Easier for me than for most is no boast, because I'm Mayakovsky. I sit and chew a fresh piece of horse flesh. The door whines, my kid sister. Oh, hello, you listen, it's New Year's tomorrow. Got some salt I could borrow? A pinch, wet too, here, let's divide it in two. Wading through snow, fighting fear, and an oh dear, how I keep on my feet. Olga stumbles along the icy three-mile-long Presnia Street. Home to salt her potatoes, she hastens. Frost walks beside her, grows fierce, inches closer, tickles and pinches. Give it me! Is it the soldier hiding? Home at last, 
and didn't lose it, but how to use it to her fingers it's frozen fast behind the wall, shuffling feet. Here, wife, we've got to eat. Trade my coat for millet, will you? Look through the pane, it's snowing again. Snow falls, covering all. Soft its step, yes, and light. Moscow's a cliff, fair and white. Snow lies in banks and drifts of forest. The skeleton clings to the cliff. Daybreak. Into the sky's thick shawl, the sun a louse crawls. December's late dawn, worn out, shivery, hangs over Moscow like typhus fever. Storm clouds vagrant to fatlands migrate. Wrapped in haze, its chest sticking out, America lies. What is it doing, lapping up coffee and cocoa by the cup? Into your face! Thick as the snout of a good-sized pig than a round tray rounder from this hungering land of ours, I shout, my love for my land is boundless! You can forget when and where you've stuffed your craw and your belly, but the land you hungered with, you can never, as long as you live and breathe, forget. Я землю эту люблю. Можно забыть, где и когда за... Я землю эту люблю. Можно забыть, где и когда пузы растил и забыть, но землю которые вдвоем голода нельзя никогда забыть. А сейчас я прочитаю вам самое начало поэмы и ее конец. Начало поэмы. Поэмы хорошо. Пока в душе Маяковского эйфория, он принял революцию. Я читаю самые оптимистические части поэмы. Бриджит, может быть, Время вещь необычайно длинная. Были времена, прошли были иные. Ни блин, ни эпосов, ни эпопей. Телеграммой лети строфа, воспаленный губой приди и попей из реки по имени Факт. Это время гудит телеграфной струной, это сердце с правдой вдвоем. Это было с бойцами или страной, или в сердце было моем. Я хожу, чтобы с этой книгой побыв, из квартирного мирка шел опять на плечах пулеметной пальбы, как штыком строкой просверкав, чтобы с книги через радость глаз 
От свидетеля счастливого В мускулы усталые лилась Строящая и бунтующая сила. Этот день воспевать никого не наймем. Мы распнем карандаш на листе, Чтобы шелест страниц, как шелест знамен, Над албами годов шелестел. Это первая часть. И последнее, финал этой поэмы. Республика наша строится, дыбится другим странам по сто, история пастью гроба, а моя страна, подросток, твори, выдумывай, пробуй, радость прет. Не для вас уделить ли нам жизнь прекрасна и удивительна? Лет до ста расти нам без старости. Год от года расти нашей бодрости. Славьте молод и стих землю молодости. Living 
Somehow, it seemed as though the farm had grown richer without making the animals themselves any richer. Except, of course, for the pigs and the dogs. Perhaps this was partly because there were so many pigs and so many dogs. It was not the, that these creatures did not work after a fashion. There was, as Wheeler never tired of explaining, endless work in the supervision and organization of the farm. Much of this work was of a kind that the other animals were too ignorant to understand. For example, Squealer told them that the pigs had to expend enormous labors every day upon mysterious things called files, reports, minutes, and memoranda. These were large sheets of paper which had to be closely covered with writing, and as soon as they were so covered, they were burnt in the furnace. <laughs> this was of the highest importance for the welfare of the farm, Squealer said. But still, neither pigs nor dogs produced any food by their own labor, and there were very many of them, and their appetites were always good. As for the others, their life, so far as they knew, was as it always had been. They were generally hungry, they slept on straw, they drank from the pool, they labored in the fields. In winter, they were troubled by the cold, and in summer, by the flies. Sometimes the older ones among them wrapped their dim memories and tried to determine whether in the early days of the rebellion, when Jones's expulsion was still recent, things had been better or worse than now. They could not remember. There was nothing with which they could compare their present lives. They had nothing to go upon except Squealer's lists of figures, which invariably demonstrated that everything was getting better and better. The animals found the problem insoluble. In any case, they had little time for speculating on such things now. Only old Benjamin professed to remember every detail of his long life and to know that things had never been, nor ever could be, much better or much worse. Hunger, hardship, and disappointment being, so he said, the unalterable law of life. And yet the animals never gave up hope. More, they never lost, even for an instant, their sense of honor and privilege in being members of Animal Farm. They were still the only farm in the whole country, in all England, owned and operated by animals. Not one of them, not even the youngest, not even the newcomers who had been bought from farms 10 or 20 miles away, ever ceased to marvel at that. And when they heard the gun booming, and saw the green flag fluttering at the masthead, their hearts swelled with imperishable pride, and the talk always turned towards the old heroic days. The expulsion of Jones, the writing of the Seven Commandments, the great battles in which the human invad invaders had been defeated. None of the old dreams had been abandoned. The Republic of the Animals, which Major had foretold, when the green fields of England should be untrodden by human feet, was still believed in. Someday it was coming. It might not be soon. It might not be within the lifetime of any animal now living. But still it was coming. Even the tune of Beasts of England was perhaps hummed secretly here and there. At any rate, it was a fact that every animal on the farm knew it, though no one would have dared to sing it aloud.
It might be that their lives were hard, and not at all, and that not all of their hopes had been fulfilled, but they were conscious that they were not as other animals. If they were hungry, it was not from feeding tyrannical human beings. If they worked hard, at least they worked for themselves. No creature among them went on two legs. No creature called any other creature master. All animals were equal. One day in early summer, Squealer ordered the sheep to follow him and led them out to a piece of waste ground at the other end of the farm, which had become overgrown with birch saplings. The sheep spent the whole day there browsing at the leaves under Squealer's supervision. In the evening, he returned to the farmhouse himself, but, as it was warm weather, told the sheep to stay where they were. It ended by their remaining there for a whole week, during which time the other animals saw nothing of them. Squealer was with them for the greater part of every day. He was, he said, teaching them to sing a new song for which privacy was needed. It was just after the sheep had returned on a pleasant evening when the animals had finished work and were making their way back to the farm buildings that the terrified neighing of a horse sounded over the yard. Startled, the animals stopped in their tracks. It was Clover's voice. She neighed again, and all the animals broke into a gallop and rushed into the yard. Then they saw what Clover had seen. It was a pig walking on his hind legs. Yes, it was Squealer. A little awkwardly, as though not quite used to supporting his considerable bulk in that position, but with perfect balance, he was strolling across the yard. And a moment later, out from the door of the farmhouse came a long file of pigs, all walking on their hind legs. Some did it better than others. One or two were even a trifle unsteady and looked as though they would have liked to support the stick. But every one of them made his way right around the yard successfully. And finally, there was a tremendous baying of dogs and a shrill crowing from the black cockerel, and out came Napoleon himself, majestically upright, passing haughty glances from side to side, and with his dogs gambling around him. He carried a whip in his trotter. There was a deadly silence. Amazed, terrified, huddling together, the animals watched the long line of pigs march slowly around the yard. It was as though the world had turned upside down. Then there came a moment when the first shock had worn off and when in spite of everything, in spite of their terror of the dogs and of the habit developed through long years of never complaining, never criticizing, no matter what happened, they might have uttered some word of protest. But just at that moment, as though at a signal, all the sheep burst out into a tremendous bleating of four legs good, two legs better, four legs good, two legs better, Four legs, good, two legs, better. It went on for five minutes without stopping. And by the time the sheep had quieted down, the chance to utter any protest had passed, for the pigs had marched back into the farmhouse. Benjamin felt a nose nuzzling at his shoulder. He looked round. It was Clover. 
Her old eyes looked dimmer than ever. Without saying anything, she tugged gently at his mane and led him round to the end of the big bar <coughs> where the seven commandments were written. For a minute or two, he <coughs> stood gazing at the tarred wall with its white lettering. My sight is failing, she said finally. Even when I was young, I could not have read what was written there. But it appears to me that that wall looks different. Are the seven commandments the same as they used to be, Benjamin? For once, Benjamin consented to break his rule, and he read out to her what was written on the wall. There was nothing there now except a single commandment. It ran, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. to the Kaluga Gate. Several of the revolutionary organizations that took part in the enterprise squabbled with each other and gave it up one by one. But when they learned that on the appointed morning people took to the streets, they hastened to send their representatives. Marfa Gavrilovna went to the demonstration with a cheerful and sociable patrulla. It was a frosty day in November. And down the street, the people came pouring, a veritable babel, faces, 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 quilted winter coats and lambskin hats, old men, girls, students and children, railway men in uniform, workers from the tram depot and the telephone station, high school and university students. For some time, they sang the Varsavianka and the Marseillaise, but suddenly, the man who had been conducting the singing stopped and began to listen to what the rest of the leaders marching beside him were saying. The singing faltered and broke off. Some well-wishers informed the initiators of the march that there were Cossacks lying in wait for the demonstrators further ahead. There had been a phone call to a nearby pharmacy about the prepared ambush. So what? the organiser said. The main thing, then, is to keep cool and not lose our heads. We must occupy the first public building that comes our way, announce the impending danger to people, and disperse one by one. They argued over which would be the best place to go. And during the argument, the corner of a government building appeared ahead of them. When the walkers drew level with it, the leaders went up onto the landing in front of it and made signs for the procession to stop. The many leaf doors of the entrance opened and all the marchers, coat after coat and hat after hat, began pouring into the vestibule. To the auditorium, to the auditorium, solitary voices shouted behind them, but the crowd continued to flow further on, dispersing through the corridors. When they managed to bring the public back and they were all sitting down, the leaders tried several times to announce that a trap had been set for them ahead, but no one listened to them. This stopping and going into the building was taken as an improvised meeting which began at once. 
After all the marching and singing, people wanted to sit silently for a while and have someone else do the work and strain his throat for them. Therefore, the greatest success fell to the worst orator. His every word was accompanied by a roar of sympathy. No one regretted that his speech was drowned out by the noise of approval. Then suddenly, bored by the monotony of his voice, they all rose and hat after hat, row after row, thronged down the stairs and poured outside, and the march continued. While they were meeting, it had begun to snow. The pavement turned white. The snow fell more and more heavily. When the dragoons came flying at them, those in the back rows did not realise it at first. Down a narrow pass formed in the crowd, horses' manes and sabre-brandishing riders raced swiftly and noiselessly. Half a platoon galloped by, turned round and cut from behind into the tail of the march. The massacre began. A few minutes later, the street was almost empty. People were fleeing into the side streets. Suddenly the sun, setting behind the houses, began poking its finger at everything red in the street. The red-topped hats of the dragoons, the red cloths of the fallen flag, the traces of blood scattered over the snow in red threads and spots. Along the edge of the pavement, dragging himself with his hands, crawled a moaning man with a split skull. A row of several horsemen rode up. Almost under their feet, Marfa Gravilovna was rushing about, shouting for the whole street to hear, Pasha, Padulia. He'd been walking with her all the while, amusing her with a skillful imitation of the last orator, and had suddenly vanished when the dragoons fell upon them. In the skirmish, Marfa Gavrilovna herself got hit in the back by a whip, and though her thick cotton-quilted coat kept her from feeling the blow, she cursed and shook her fist at the retreating cavalry, indignant that they had dared to lash her, an old woman, with a whip before the eyes of all honest people. Marfa Gavrilovna cast worried glances down both sides of the street. Luckily, she suddenly saw the boy on the opposite pavement. There, in the narrow space between a colonial shop and a projecting townhouse, crowded a bunch of chance gawkers. A dragoon who had ridden up onto the pavement was pressing them into that nook with the haunch of his horse. He was amused by their terror. Suddenly, he saw ahead his comrades returning, spurred his horse, and in two or three leaps took his place in their line. The people packed into the nook dispersed. Pasha, who had been afraid to call out, rushed to the old woman and they walked home. Marfa Gavrilovna, Marfa Gavrilovna grumbled all the while. Cursed murderers, fiendish butchers. She was angry with the dragoons, with the whole world around her, and at that moment, even with her own son. In this moment of passion, it seemed to her that everything going on now was all the tricks of Kuprinka's blunderers, 
whom she nicknamed Duds and Smart Alex. Wicked vipers. What do the loudmouths want? They've got no brains, nothing but barking and squabbling. And that speechifier, how about him, Pashinka? Yakety yak, yak, yak. At home, she fell upon her son with reproaches that it was not for her, at her age, to be taught with a whip on the behind by a shaggy blockhead on a horse. International, but before Connie starts us, and I hope as many of you will join in as possible. It's the back page of the program if you're lucky enough to have a program. Um, before I ask Connie to lead us in song, I'd like to thank all the participants in this evening's series of readers. They're all uh, colleagues and students, past and present. Uh, from the Department of Russian and Slavonic Studies. Uh, so I'd like to invite you all to join with me in thanking them all.
your head. Have a good evening. It's now over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.